All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the second day of May, 2017. Let let me remind you that I'm also the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks newsletter, and you can subscribe to that letter, which features lots of very exciting junior exploration companies. Uh, you can go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com to sign up for my letter. Like like to also encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's excellent newsletter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Uh, go to chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com. And Chen has had an excellent track record of uh, investing, uh, turning some $5,400 into $2.5 million in about 10 years. Pretty good, I'd say. Uh, And he is uh, sharing some of that information with uh, his subscribers, uh, sharing his ideas, his investment ideas to his paid subscribers. However, today, if you'd like to catch a couple of Chen's ideas, um, he can be heard in uh, an interview I did with him a couple of days ago at jtaylormedia.com. You can go to jtaylormedia.com. There he talked about a favorite gold stock, a favorite silver stock, uh, his favorite energy stock, and two biotech stocks that he thinks may be poised for huge gains. Again, you can subscribe to my letter at miningstocks.com or Chen Lin's letter at chenpicks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to invite you to keep your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises coming along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questionsfortaylor at gmail. And uh, last but not least, I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Dynasert Inc., uh, Trimetals Mining, Telson Resources, RN Resources, Novo Resources, Uranium Energy Corp., and Genesis Metals Corp. I've titled today's show, Lessons for Today from the Ford Motor Company. Chris Whalen visits for the first time, and Jim Payne, he's the president and CEO of Dynasert, He will be back with me at least for a second time now. Uh, Chris is a highly regarded and well-known Wall Street analyst. You've seen him many times on on television, for sure, on all the major networks. He will talk to us today, however, about his book, Ford Men, uh, From Inspiration to Enterprise. And in that book, he explains how Henry Ford's selfishness, in fact, caused a catastrophic bank holiday. That is that one that occurred in 1933. And as such, uh, he was it greatly worsened the Great Depression. We may have had one anyway, Chris will tell us, but uh, that was a, a big event that sort of ushered things along more quickly than might have otherwise happened. We'll 
uh, here. I actually pre-recorded Chris last week uh, in this interview that will be played at about half past the hour. Uh, he also offered his uh, highly respected views on the current banking industry in the United States and around the world. In just a few minutes uh, after a first commercial break, I'm happy to say that uh, Jim Payne will be with me again. As I just noted, he is the president and CEO of Dynacert. Uh, that's the company that is manufacturing the hydrogen retrofit units on semi-trucks uh, that reduces fuel consumption, also dramatically reduces carbon emissions. And it also uh, lowers maintenance costs for the engines of these trucks. The company has just gained some important certification in Europe, and it has the Canadian government firmly behind it as well. Uh, the stock has been performing well on heavy volume, and the first sales now being uh, reported by the company uh, seems to um, be going down well with uh, with the market at least. So I'm really looking forward to chatting with Jim to gain an update uh, from him on these shares, what's happening in the company, what his vision is going forward. Now, Michael Oliver is not with us today, but let me pass along a couple of his remarks on gold and the dollar that he made in his weekend missive. With respect to gold, Michael has recently said he thinks the next major push higher for gold will come with, with a weaker dollar. That said, Michael is looking for gold to rise to the 1320 level, uh, which he believes uh, when that is when that level is reached, that uh, that will be a very positive signal that the next phase of the gold bull market is underway. And um, regarding the downside risk, he says he would prefer not to see a close in May below 12.44 for gold, um, because he says uh, that and that's based on his momentum factors. He says he doesn't have any particular technical reason to expect that to be uh, that low to be hit. Uh, but it is a structurally important level, so he simply wanted to point it out. The dollar, uh, with respect to the dollar, um, he's been looking for a close on the index below 99. And in fact, it closed, um, it actually probed 98.69 this last month, uh, but closed at 99.05, or just a whisker above the threshold. So Michael... uh, added in this week's missive, he says, and I quote, there are times we opt to to be bean counters and demand precision, and this is one of those times. Well, we do have to go to our first commercial break, but don't go away because, as I mentioned, Jim Payne, the president and CEO of Dynacert, will be with me uh, to tell us about that company's rapid sales growth and other very positive developments uh, for this company's hydrogen technology. It's dramatically reducing fuel consumption and carbon emissions, and it may not be important to Donald Trump in the United States, but it most certainly is uh, to the Premier of Canada and uh, the Europeans and other places around the world. And uh, this is a company that I'm very happy to have as a sponsor and look forward to hearing what Jim has to say right after the break, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Foreign Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. 
Hilson Resources is building a new gold mine in Durango State that is destined to become one of the highest grade gold producers in Mexico. Telson plans to commence production in early 2018 to mine over 1,000 tons per day by the end of the first year. Telson presents an exciting opportunity to investors seeking to position themselves in an exciting and robust new undervalued gold mine opportunity. Telson Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol TSN and on the OTCBB under symbol SOHFF. TriMetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company exploring and developing its near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. TriMetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a gold resource with a robust preliminary economic assessment. TriMetals believes that with further drilling, there is a significant potential to discover 3 to 5 million ounces of gold at Gold Springs. TriMetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively, and its website is trimetalsmining.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Jim Payne. He's the president and CEO of Dinosert Inc. That's a company, Canadian company that appears to be making some really good progress in generating sales from its hydrogen carbon emissions reduction technology. Uh, Dinosert trades in Toronto under the symbol DYA. You can buy it down here in the U.S. as I have under the symbol DYFSF. Uh, 230.7 million shares outstanding at last count. At least that's what I've seen. Dollar uh, five uh, yesterday, at least in Canadian money, 72 cents in U.S. money, somewhere around that range, giving it a market cap of uh, 240 million Canadian or 166 million, roughly speaking, in U.S. dollars. The stock has done very, very well. It's a very constructive looking chart. Uh, so I'm really pleased to have Jim with me. Thanks for joining me again, Jim. Thank you, Jay. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, always fun to talk to you, especially it's fun to talk to companies that are on the upswing. And, uh, you know, you were last on my show back on March 21st, and shortly before that, in February, you had just announced your first sales orders of $1.8 million. Now I see on March, uh, more recently, you've announced a $2.7 million in sales, uh, Canadian money. Uh, just for the sake of listeners who may not be familiar with Dinosert, can you tell them, can you, can you explain what your hydrogen technology is all about and and what applications it is meant for. Absolutely. I mean, our current unit, our hydrogen, or HG1, it is a very unique patent-pending unit. It's a demand demand electrolysis unit. It's designed for internal combustion engines. What we do is we supply the air intake with hydrogen and oxygen gases. We separate it. Uh, The results in that, you know, shows increased fuel economy, increased torque, extended engine oil life, and the reduction in emissions. And as you know, we have not uh, that long ago got verification of our 
fuel savings on an average of 19.2%. Mm-hmm. Uh, the greenhouse gas, greenhouse gases were reducing that on an average of 40% and a particulate matter in 65%. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's pretty impressive. Now, uh, Jim, before we went on the air, you were talking about your HG2 uh, technology. What does that do that the HG1 doesn't do? What's what what's that? What's that all about? Well, our HG2. That's uh, just about a month or month and a half ago. We had our AGM, and at that point, we introduced our HG2. It's it's a unit that is about a quarter the size of our original unit, and this is being developed for the reefer market, uh, which is refrigeration units. I never understood before, but that market is actually three and a half times greater than the trucking industry in North America. Wow. But, uh, they have smaller engines, but this unit will also, so this unit is being designed specifically for that and for class six and seven trucks or the average delivery trucks and or buses. And uh, so we've developed, our engineers developed this thing. It's, it's really cool to see, but it. Uh, so we are just actually receiving this week our first final prototype, and we've got one of Loblaw's reefers that they had donated to us or lent to us for the development of this parked out front, and we were very anxious to get the thing on there to, to start measuring the performance on it. Yeah, for Americans that may not be familiar, Loblaw's is a very large um, retailer, uh, grocery retailer, is that it, grocery in Canada? Retail, that's correct. Yeah. Aha, uh-huh. and they must have a lot of trucks, and if this can work, they might be a customer of yours. They've got a lot of trucks, and they've got a lot of uh, a lot of refrigeration a lot of refrigeration units. But uh, yeah, they have actually you know they've actually got units on their transport trucks right now. They're doing a very controlled uh, test of this. They purchased uh, the first four units to to try them out and uh, you know they are very excited about what's happening there and so on the heels of that they brought over one of these reefers and introduced us to this market and actually lent us a reefer unit here and it, you know, told us if we need it for six months for the development. They said you know we want to be the first in the market to be able to boldly talk about this so we're excited about it. Jim, you mentioned uh, before we went on the air that um, there's uh, you're, you're talking expansion again, possibly at least. Uh, uh, is that for the HG2 uh, unit, uh, or, or can you talk about that at all? Yeah, well, uh, as you know, it wasn't long ago we just expanded, you know, into another 8,000 square feet of manufacturing, but we're just uh, we just finalized the finalized the deal, and within the next six weeks, we're doubling the size of it again. And uh, so this is for two things. Number one, our, our HG1 units for trucks. I mean, we're producing right now on an average of 50 units a day and shipping them all over the place, and we're increasing that very rapidly. But then with this HG2, this is certainly a market that, uh, that we're very aggressively going after, too. So, so the, the, HG2, the HG2 will be produced in, in, one, in one plant or a different section of the, of the same plant or what? It'll be in a different section of the same plant. I see. Okay. All right. Well, your, your first application is, is, has, is, has been this, uh, this HG1, the retrofit of the trucks, commercial larger trucks. Uh, so wh- how, how are the sales going there? Um, pretty well from what I can tell, but can you give us some insight into the sales uh, for the HG1? Yeah, the sales are going very well. Our, our financials just went out last night uh, for our year end, and it it's actually shows us now as a 
totally debt-free company, and today we just announced the retirement of the final debts of the company. But as far as sales, uh, you know, we have announced just under $5 million in sales to date. Uh, we just started sales, I don't know, what is it, six weeks ago or so. And uh, so our first quarter, we doubled our expectation there. Our second quarter, we've already half-filled what, what our expectations were. And as things ramp up, I mean, you know, our expectations are we're going to do $108 million in sales this year. So. Oh, that's... Uh... And you, you talked in the past about uh, margins. Um, are they, maybe it's too early to know yet, but are they, they holding up pretty well? Because they were pretty robust margins. Jay, the margins are crazy, and they are holding up. And actually, our first quarter financials will be going out in, in the next couple of weeks. And at that point, it will clearly define what those are. And uh, everybody we're talking to on, on Bay Street and on the market right now are just floored by what the margins are. But... Uh, uh, and, and certainly as we continue to expand and, and continue to uh, manufacture more, the margins will actually even get better than, than they were in the past. So. Um, you've, you, have a, you have a Canadian government up there that is very friendly towards what you're doing, a, a, an environmentally friendly uh, administration up there, a government, uh, a national government that's very pro-green, you might say. Uh, maybe in somewhat in contrast to uh, to our new president down here, uh, and and you've also recently had um, some a friendly reception from Europe, where they're also quite concerned about the environment. Um, how are is politics playing into your to your game plans? I would think quite favorable in Canada and Europe. But can you talk about the uh, some regulation that's been passed? I think that that recognizes your technology in Europe. Well, in Europe, yes, we just received our CE, uh, CE certification in Europe, so our, our technology is now certified for Europe. We have uh, not long ago hired a new VP of global sales. We actually imported him from Europe. I mean, this, this is a gentleman with 30-plus years' experience in uh, logistics but also in sales, and uh, so he's been here for the last few weeks. He is actually traveling back to Europe next week to spend a couple of weeks there. He's already got a huge interest in, in Europe, and we're shipping some units over there next week for him. But uh, also, you know, here our Canadian government is, uh, I, would, I would dare say they're now calling us their poster child. And, uh, you know, we have certainly, you know, they've made very bold statements of what they're going to do as far as reducing greenhouse gases and, and uh, cleaning the environment. And I dare to say that Dynasert is playing a very big role in that to help them achieve that. Well, you've also, I mean, if you've got carbon credits and those, that sort of uh, legislation, uh, has that been passed? Is there something like that in Canada now, a market for carbon credits? Well, they just started the cap and trade. I mean, they're still trying uh-huh. to figure this thing out, but uh, the mm-hmm. carbon credits are definitely becoming a reality, and that's one thing. Uh, you know, I have said, anybody who knows me, I've said for years that, you know, this company is going to get to the point where our product will be worth its weight in gold just in carbon credits. And I believe that's really becoming a reality because with our smart ECU, which is the brain behind our technology, and that I would certainly say is our most valued asset. I mean, but the, our smart ECU, I mean, it it's like a smartphone. It's learning all the time. It communicates with the onboard computer of an engine so it's altering the flow of gases and it's learning how to get the maximum benefit or burn out of, out of the engine, but it is also 
you know, tracking and monitoring fuel savings, emission savings, and then uh, converting it to carbon credits. So, and, and this mm-hmm. is new technology that we hold. It's patent pending. We got to worldwide patent pending on it. And uh, then David Bridge, you know, the gentleman that we brought on, you know, that is the brains behind our brain, uh, you know, he was, he originally came on as a consultant, then he became so ingrained with the company, we gave him the title of COO. Now, just as of officially this morning, we announced, I mean, he has stepped down from the role of COO so that he can be 110% focused on the development and further development of of our smart ECU because this thing is, you know, an ongoing thing and he's also very, very extremely good at, at patents. So, you know, to increase our our holdings and our patents, you know, he is going to focus on that. And then we have bought new, very seasoned engineer with years of experience in manufacturing that that has taken on the role of COO that we just announced this morning. Yes, indeed, and um, you. So you. What I wonder about, though, you know, you you have this carbon credit thing, but also you talk about a nineteen point two percent saving in fuel, and so whether you're orientated towards environmental uh, health or not, nineteen point two percent savings uh, for truck companies would be very meaningful. I would think. There, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's certainly the the number one largest fixed cost in the, in the trucking industry is the fuel and you know 19.2 percent and I can and I can tell you that you know we've got units being installed every day we have several units out there the units are meeting and exceeding our expectations as far as fuel savings and emission savings so uh, you know but even at 10 percent fuel savings their return on investment is less than one year typical Typical long transport hauler, their return on investment at 10% fuel savings is eight months. So mm. it becomes oh. a no-brainer. Yeah. And I guess the efficiency with this smart ECU or the technology that you have, as you explained to me the last time you were on, there's there's a difference depending on the environment these trucks are operating on uh, in uh, that the burn has to be somewhat different or adjustments can be made. Is that right on an ongoing bu- biz, uh, basis so that – optimization is reached with these uh, with this technology no you're absolutely right and that's what I was saying you know there's there's so many variables and there's so many changes all the time from anything from environment to climate to altitude to humidity and it just goes on and on and on well with our smart ECU and the way it's learning and understanding this it does alter the flows so that you know we are you know working towards maximizing the burn at any given time Jim, with just less than two minutes left, actually about a minute left now, uh, can you? I see that your your um, the company's your shares were accepted in the uh, TSX Venture Fifty. What is that? Has that given you a boost? Uh, I suppose with respect to uh, investment funds and so forth, that would be investing in you. Well, I definitely, I definitely think that gave us a boost. Uh, it's certainly uh, because we weren't just recognized as the top fifty; we were actually recognized as the number one top company in science and innovation for the last year and the mm. number one top stock performing company for the last year. So you know, we actually got special recognition for that. Um, and, and then, you know, as, as the company is moving forward and continue to move forward, we are, we are already in the process of taking the company from the Venture Exchange onto the Toronto Exchange. And so we're going to start playing with the big boys. Yeah, well, well, indeed you should. And I suppose as those numbers keep 
climbing. Um, just 30 seconds. Uh, anything else you'd like to add before we, uh, before we conclude our discussion today? No, the one thing I, I guess I could add, you know, we are just, we're very, very excited. I mean, our, our company is growing rapidly. Uh, I would dare say we're one of the fastest growing companies in Ontario, if not in Canada right now. But, uh, you know, our technology is, there's quite a buzz starting, you know, and that's, Indeed. What's, uh, that's what's, that's the biggest thing, you know, that's the most exciting thing because it's word of mouth. It's, it's not, you know, it's not what I say or, or what yeah. we put out there in print. It's, uh, and the numbers are doing the street. talking. And Absolutely. the numbers are doing the talking. Jim, we do right. have to go now. We're out of time. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll look to do it again sometime in the near future. Well, folks, after the break, Chris Whalen will be with me, so don't go away. I'll be right back with Chris Whalen. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently upgrading and expanding on its resources to produce an economic study in Q3 2017, followed by construction in Q1 2018. Novo enjoys a strong balance sheet and supportive shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRPF, respectively. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. Uranium Energy Corps, NYSE Market, UEC, is a leader in the coming bull market in uranium. With spot uranium up more than 40% in two months, the new bull market is just starting. UEC has the cash, the licensed resources, the permitted processing center, the advanced technology, and the experienced team to lead this market. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting uraniumenergy.com. NYSE Market, UEC. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm happy to have with me for the first time Christopher Whalen, who is uh, well-known in the world of finance for his candid truth-telling, especially when it comes to the banking industry. Uh, Christopher is the ultimate Wall Street insider, but he is one who I believe provides an objective vision of financial reality that is often, if not usually, missing from the mainstream narrative. Christopher has worked in politics at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York and as an investment banker for more than 30 years, and he is considered one of the most incisive and thoughtful financial analysts 
on Wall Street. Uh, he covers a wide range of subjects from banking to housing to global economics and the financial reserve or in the Federal Reserve. He is the uh, author of three books, Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream, Financial Stability, Fraud, Confidence and the Wealth of Nations, and most recently, a book titled Ford Men, From Inspiration to Enterprise. Christopher publishes the blog, Washington and Wall Street, and contributes to many publications and appears in media outlets, including CNBC, Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, and you can follow him on Twitter uh, under the handle R.C. Whalen. that's spelled W-H-A-L-E-N. Welcome, Christopher, and thanks for joining me today on Turning Hard Times into Good Times. You know, it's really an honor to have you with me on this show. I've listened to you many times with Tom Keene on Bloomberg and various other venues uh, in the past, and I've always loved your honesty and lack of political correctness. So it is indeed an honor to have you join me today. Thank you so much for being with me. Yeah, my pleasure, Jay. It's always, uh, it's always great to be on the radio. It's always good to have to hear your voice and to hear your candid views, and that's uh, quite frankly why I'm thrilled to have you with me. You know, Chris, you're best known, at least in my mind, for your work and analysis in the banking industry, and I certainly have some questions for you along those lines if, uh, if you're willing to, to discuss those. But let's start out first by giving our listeners a little information about your latest book, uh, Ford Men, uh, From Inspiration to Enterprise. You know, given your strong background in the banking industry, what prompted you to write a book about the Ford Motor Company? Well, really two things. Uh, first, I'm a student of the Great Depression, and mm-hmm. I was always fascinated by the role that Henry Ford played in 1932 and 33 to really make the Great Depression much worse. He essentially tried to take all his money out of the banks in Detroit, if you can imagine that. He, he was one of the wealthiest men in America at the time. So that, you, you know, Herbert Hoover begged him not to do this. They tried for months to change his mind. And right before Lincoln's birthday in early 1933, he you know, indicated that he was going to try and take his money out of the banks, which would cause them all to collapse. Mm-hmm. So the governor of Michigan found out about this and declared a bank holiday. And three weeks later, when FDR took office and said, there is nothing to fear but fear itself, uh, it's because every bank in the country was closed. And that mm-hmm. was due to Henry Ford's selfishness and, and short-sightedness. So I had always been fascinated by that, because as I say, I'm a student of the Depression. And in, uh, I also worked as a contributor to the Washington Times, and I did a number of articles about the Ford uh, Explorer and the Firestone Tires and mm-hmm. that whole mess. So between those two experiences, I just started working on this book 12 years ago. And I was an investment banker at the time, and I, I didn't have a happy ending because Bill Ford was just taking over the company, and it was kind of a, a miserable time for Ford, which I talk about in the book. But mm-hmm. since then, I wrote two other books, and then I decided to finally publish Ford Men because we had a happy ending. Uh, Bill saved the company and redeemed uh, you know, his family's legacy. And what I tried to do with the book was just tell the story of all of the other people that you never hear about, the mm-hmm. people who actually made the company successful. Because the Ford Motor Company Public Relations Department is very good at what they do, and they've kind of airbrushed the history. So you would think that Henry Ford did everything. Right. In fact, he, he was a fairly dysfunctional human being. He was a lot like Steve Jobs. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, that's very interesting. Well, could you possibly give us a little insight into Henry Ford, the man? What, 
psychological characteristics were there that, that drove him and, and led to the Ford family legacy, or at least the legacy that we have been led to believe exists? I mean, what well, Henry was Ford like? was a man with a vision. He had an idea of creating uh, cheap transportation for Americans. And that singular vision was manifested in the Ford Motor Company. And really, for the first 50 years of the company's existence, they really only had an entry-level product. If you were you know, a successful businessman and you bought a Ford as your first car, you probably wouldn't buy a Ford after that because mm-hmm. they didn't have anything else. Uh, General Motors you know, quickly eclipsed Ford in the first half of the 20, 20th century. And you know, the Ford was compared to Chevrolet through most of that period because they were so much smaller. Um, Henry Ford didn't invent the assembly line. That was his oh. Danish uh, engineer, Charles Sorensen. Uh, he didn't raise wages. That was his business partner, James Cousins, who is the man who turned it from an inspiration into an enterprise. You know, mm. Cousins is the, the gritty businessman who said to Henry Ford, we're selling cars. I'm putting an ad in the newspaper tomorrow. Ford was a tinkerer, a perfectionist, uh, a man who took his own advice and you know, had two business failures before he started Ford Motor Company with some investors in Detroit. He wasn't even an officer of the company when it started because he had hmm. such a bad reputation. So there's a lot of nuance to the Ford story uh, that I think is important for Americans today. It tells about how important luck is in business and, and being in the right place at the right time. You know, if Henry Ford hadn't met the people who backed him and got him off the ground, he probably would have faded into obscurity, and we'd be sitting here talking about the Dodge brothers instead. In fact, Mm. Horace Dodge was one of the original shareholders of the Ford Motor Company and a parts Mm -hmm. supplier. Uh, They didn't even have a factory when they started. (laughs) The Dodge brothers were were building the cars as kits for them. So there's a lot of detail in the story, and it's such fun to tell because it's it's about America. It's a really interesting overlay for the, the 20th century of American history. It is an interesting, uh, very interesting book. If you if you care about history and about enterprise and how things happened, um, it, it's a very enjoyable read, Christopher. And uh, it's, it, I guess, what I'd like to know is, um, you, you sort of touched on it. What what impl- implications does it have? This is history. Uh, you you know, we saw how one man's behavior led to a catastrophe, an economic catastrophe. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I mean, is there something to be taken away from that in, in uh, current events? Well, I think the contrast between Henry Ford and his son, Etzel, is very instructive. You know, Henry mm. Ford, with all of his personal failings and flaws, was still a very significant figure in the 20th century. But if he had had the intelligence and the compassion of his son, Etzel, he would have mm-hmm. been one of the great men of the century. Uh, by far. You know, Edsel, probably of all the Ford family, knew the most about manufacturing cars, ironically enough. You know, Henry didn't particularly get his hands dirty because he had people around him who could make things happen. That's really one of the key parts of the story is you always be looking for people who can help you to build that team. And if you think of, you know, decades later when Alan Mullally, uh, the former Boeing executive, was brought in to save Motor, uh, Ford Motor Company 
in the mid-2000s. What was he doing? He was really trying to forge a team and to take it away from the kind of plantation mentality that unfortunately has prevailed at Ford for much of the last 100 years. So I think the key thing is that you can't do things of this scale and this complexity without a lot of help and without mm-hmm. luck and mm-hmm. also without the ability to to change in the short term, in the tactical sense. You know, people mm-hmm. talk about planning a business and managing a business. But what the story of Ford really tells you is that even with a lot of management and a lot of planning, you can still screw things up on a colossal scale. <laughs> yeah. And yet, and and yet cause... somehow survive. Because during this whole period, General Motors filed bankruptcy three times. And somehow Ford uh, avoided that ignominy. So it's it's a fascinating tale. It really is. Well, I just think it's a startling statement that you make. Um, you know, something that I hadn't at all made any connection with the idea of Henry Ford having anything to do with the Great Depression. But the fact, uh, you know, the fact that Hen- you, you basically say in the preface to your book that that Henry Ford caused the catastrophic banking holidays of 1933, and I and I see now uh, how that is. But of course, the public relations people at Ford. Uh, didn't highlight that that event. That's for sure. No, and you know, and in fairness to Henry Ford, would the banks have failed in Detroit? Probably, but uh-huh. it might not have been such a catastrophe, such that it rippled across the country and caused uh-huh. the governors in other states to declare bank holidays. That mm-hmm. was the real, the real catalyst of it, and it shows. You know, think about that today. If the U.S. went through that kind of a catastrophe today and you couldn't get money out of the bank for mm-hmm. months mm-hmm. and people just had to subsist, you know, cars disappeared from the streets in the 30s, horses made a reappearance, the whole economy was on its knees. And Henry Ford made that worse. And what's interesting is the, the juxtaposition and the tension between Henry Ford and James Cousins, who by that time was the senator from Michigan. And where you can read about this, fascinating, is in the memoirs of Herbert Hoover, and Mm -hmm. also in the great book by Jesse Jones, $50 billion. Jesse Jones ran the Reconstruction Finance Corporation during the 30s, and he literally restructured the U.S. economy. And he also talked about the impact of Ford's you know, so narrow-mindedness uh, on, on, you know, the, the country. Because keep in mind, Ford took the position, he said, well, I don't care if the economy falls apart, I will rebuild. And this is mm. such a ridiculous statement because he was helped by so many people. If he mm-hmm. hadn't had the group and the team around him, he never would have enjoyed that success and, and been in the position that he was to to pull the rug out from under his whole community. So, you know, it's it's an interesting insight into people. And again, yeah. Henry Ford is a lot like Steve Jobs. If you look <laughs> at, you know, what a difficult human being Jobs is described yeah. as, Henry right. Ford was worse. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of hard to imagine, but you mentioned his son Edsel had compassion. And I'm listening yeah. to what you're saying here, Chris, about... You know, I'm, I'm thinking about capitalism as a whole. We know, I think you and I are in agreement with capitalism is the best system. It, it allocates scarce resources. You have incentives for people to behave well. But sometimes people take advantage of their position to, to not behave well. They're lacking that compassion, I think you said, that his son Edsel had. Looking back on it, if Ford had that kind of compassion... Uh, it's sort of interesting to speculate what history might have brought, but if a, a gentler, kindler, a more kind um, 
depression, perhaps. Uh, certainly with the bank holidays and, and removing gold from the monetary system, mm. or still not allowing individuals to, uh, maybe that would have happened anyway. I don't know, but... Uh, in any well, it certainly set up a great antipathy between Ford and Franklin Roosevelt. And I'm not sure, you know, <clears throat> there, there were a couple of events. First was in 1927, uh, Ford idled his factory for over a year because they had made the Model T for two decades because uh-huh. Henry thought it was the perfect car. And, and meanwhile, <laughs> General Motors had, had sprinted ahead of them with multiple product lines and a real sense of the consumer and what the consumer wanted. Henry Ford ignored what the consumer wanted. He just kept making the car cheaper in one color, black. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so you have this situation in the closure of the Ford plant uh, many economists believe actually contributed to the depression because it put so many people out of work. But the other interesting vignette is James Cousins, a very modest man who scraped up his savings and his family's money to invest in Ford. They got all their money back in the first year, and then he ends up as one of the wealthiest men in the country and goes on to a career in politics. He is the one, I believe, who and insisted with Henry Ford and the other directors of the company to raise wages because mm-hmm. he saw the privation in Detroit in the 20s and, and earlier, and he saw just how hard it was, and he saw how easily he had become you know, immensely wealthy by uh-huh. the standards of the day. And I think you know, he was a, a modest, uh, kind of middle-of-the-road Democrat from Michigan, great senator, and I think that really colored his political view, was how quickly he had become rich while all of his fellow Detroit uh, you know, residents uh, did not enjoy that kind of prosperity. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems sort of like a, a Keynesian concept, essentially, is to put money in the hands of the people with a high propensity to spend, right? And yes. that's, that's what he yeah. did. And uh, is that concept, it doesn't seem to be so prevalent today. You would think that the Democrats would be all over that one, that they would want to have money in the hands of the middle class. But it seems as though the middle class is basically, this is off topic, of course, now, Chris, but no, I would okay. just like to get, get, get your thoughts on that. Why, you know, because that, that makes perfect sense to me, even as a free market guy. I understand that if, if families need to feed their family, they're going to spend the first dollar they get to do that and to okay. put a roof over their heads. So why is that that missing from the um, you know from the democratic playbook these days? I think uh, that a lot of liberal economists and politicians kind of you know either genuinely or disingenuously uh, miss a connection between investment and growth and productivity and, mm-hmm. and rising wages, rising real incomes. You know, there's mm-hmm. two things that really hurt. Uh, income uh, equality. One is inflation, which comes to us care of our friends at the Fed. They think 2% inflation is great. You know, over 20 <laughs> years, that takes away half of your purchasing power. And then the other thing is technology. Technology is a tremendously disinf- you know, deflationary force. Mm-hmm. It, it, it has taken many, many more jobs out of this country than uh, immigration or free trade or anything of that nature. And I think the, the big challenge we all face is how do we get productivity to grow? In other words, make our people more productive, more efficient, so they can earn more. 
because there's only two components to growth, population growth and productivity. Population in this country is growing half of 1% a year. Uh, after World War II, it was 2% a year. That's mm-hmm. a big difference. And mm-hmm. that's part of the reason why it's so hard to get the economy to grow faster is you just don't have that pull the way I had when I was a kid. And my parents you know, were raising me in the 70s and the 80s. It was easy mm-hmm. to get inflation. You just spent a little more money. Today, right. you have the opposite situation. You have an elderly population that's mostly now spending savings. They're not buying homes or starting families. So the whole demographic profile of society is different. And between that and technology, which is constantly forcing prices down, forcing wages down, you have a, a difficult uh, environment when it comes to consumer income. Right. Well, it's certainly the the technology is increasing productivity per man hour. I guess yes. I would think, and but so that doesn't necessarily I, hand them uh, the, the kind of job they're looking for. It, it may actually reduce. give you an example. If you put robots in McDonald's, okay, mm-hmm. once that wage rate gets up in the mid-teens, it makes sense to do it with robots instead of people. Right. That's what that's happening now. Oh, essentially. It is. I mean, to an extent, yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah, so, so, I mean, in a way, we get back to the Ford situation where, you know, paying higher wages to people actually was good for the economy, getting money into the hands oh, yeah. of, of people that would spend it. And uh, I just don't hear that, that discussed very much these days. I guess, in general, there's tax cuts from the Republicans, and Democrats always seem to oppose it. But anyway, I digress a bit from, from your book and, and the ideas of your book. But I do want to also, I, I don't know if there's anything else, what would you like to say to people why they should buy your book, Chris? What, what's the main reason? I mean, we've talked, I think it's fascinating, it's interesting reading. Uh, but give a little a little pitch for your book. Well, I think it gives you insights into why businesses are successful or not. Mm-hmm. And it also, I think, gives a lot of insight into people and the role that they play, not just in business, but in, in life in general. Because many of the the vignettes from the early years of Ford and the auto industry are kind of amazing because, you know, why, why for example, did uh, James Cousins pushed to raise wages because the auto industry was so profitable. There was mm-hmm. such demand for automobiles, they could sell anything. Today, you have the opposite. You have an auto industry that's largely making commodities. They have three different types, a low-end car, a mid-range car, and a luxury car. Mm-hmm. Most automakers don't make any money. They, mm-hmm. they really are not profitable if you take a hard look at their financials. So then you say, well, why do they do it? Well, because governments want to have an auto industry. You see this all over Asia. You see mm-hmm. a lot of irrational competitors that don't really make money, but they want to have a car industry in their country. You then have uh, Google and Uber and uh, Tesla who are all bringing different types of, of transportation to market. Are any of them making money? Really? No. They're all operating at a loss. <laughs> so it gives an insight as to why many industries around the world today struggle to be profitable and struggle to pay their workers a decent wage because there's overcapacity. You saw this back in the 20s, too, in between World War One and World War Two, Huge amounts of overcapacity, excess labor caused by technology caused by electrification and steam and all of these other inventions. So I think Ford Men gives you a very 
uh, important overview of how economies change and how people can be successful in those changing environments by also changing themselves and being flexible. All right, I'd like to ask you a a couple questions perhaps about the banking industry since you've been so much involved and you're known for your expertise in that that industry, Christopher. Um, You mentioned overcapacity, and I'm wondering if to what extent the um, the excessive amount of money creation over the over the decades, whenever there's a problem, basically the Fed just starts to create money out of nothing, and other central banks around the world do the same. To what extent is that maybe causing malinvestment and money being available to go into areas that are unprofitable, such as the automobile industry, to the extent it is, as you suggest, and many other industries? Would you agree with that concept? There is certainly a surfeit of capital available today, uh, much more than one could deploy in, in a reasonable fashion. In other words, in the expectation you were going to get your money back plus a return. That's the old-fashioned definition of investing. So if you look at banking today, most of the banks are considerably less profitable than they were 30 and 40 years ago. And they tend to have to cheat or take risks that they didn't have to take, you know, many decades before simply to get that level of earnings or apparent earnings into the hands of shareholders. Mm -hmm. You have, you know, it's defined as a, a surfeit of savings by economists and they endlessly try and figure out how to get companies to invest these savings to generate jobs and income for people. But I think the reality is that many companies today face a dearth of opportunities that they really feel comfortable putting their shareholders' capital into. And no amount of cajoling and encouragement from the economist profession is is necessarily going to change that. So when you look at interest rates and savings rates today, very low. And people say, well, gee, why can't I earn a decent return on my savings? I did the right thing. I was conservative. I didn't speculate in stocks. Why am I being punished? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, is that the central bankers, to your point, have enabled an awful lot of debt creation, especially by governments. And low rates is essentially a way to transfer money from savers to indebted governments. It's mm-hmm. what we call financial repression. Uh, and the economists do this with a smile on their face, of course, because they are the handmaidens of the politicians. But I think that the entire financial system, banks, and particularly sovereign countries, uh, face a real issue because they have more debt than they can ever repay. And the only way they can manage it is to keep saving rates very low, which means you're punishing grandma and grandpa, mm-hmm. who, who by rights ought to be benefiting from their conservatism, but they're not. Right. Well, where is this going to end? I mean, Chris, you know, we we have um, a $20 trillion deficit um, debt load, I should say, that's coming up. Uh, the debt ceiling needs to be lifted soon. Uh, I, I, you know, it's interesting to know. I, I would like to know who's buying treasuries these days because from what I see, foreign governments, and for the longest time we sort of depended on, on China and Japan, uh, to to make up the lack of savings in this country, the lack of treasury purchases, uh, um, and they seem to be going away. From what I see, there's some there was actually a negative twelve uh, percent in 2015, 2016 from foreign buyers of treasuries. 
Uh, Social Security Trust Fund, from what I can see, is is funding less of the treasuries now because people are getting older, money is flowing out, and less money going in as as, as the economy is weak, uh, wages are lower, and so forth. And the Fed claims that it's no longer doing quantitative easing. How are interest rates staying low if the QE if QE is finished and the, and these other sources of financing aren't there, Chris? How how are they managing to keep interest rates so low? Well, for now, rates are low because all of the money creation you referred to before has been causing investors to scramble to find you know adequate places to put their money. As Treasury issuance of debt starts to accelerate, though, I think that dynamic is going to change, and you're going to see the current secular tightness of money and, and even falling interest rates. You know, think about it. Since Trump was elected, uh, the 10-year Treasury went up to about 2.6% yield, and it's mm-hmm. now down to 22 again. So even Mm -hmm. though Janet Yellen and her friends at the Fed are talking about raising interest rates, in fact, long-term rates are falling. Hmm. And it's partly because investors are just so hungry for paper. But I think that you will see uh, an evolution as as U.S. deficits get larger and uh, interest rates start to rebalance again uh, away from government debt. You may even see government debt getting penalized. Because so many governments in the EU, you know, the U.S. is an example too, uh, Japan, many other states are just up to their eyeballs in debt, and they can't pay it. So that means they're going to have to restructure or forgive some of this debt, and that will cause problems. You know, if you look at the EU, for example, with their banking system, most of the big banks in Europe are insolvent. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very difficult to clear up a bad debt because the courts move so slowly in Europe. So it's a very hostile place for for creditors and very friendly for debtors who are usually close to the political uh, authorities in each country. And it's it's unlike the U.S. where our economy still functions pretty well. You know, if you have a bankruptcy or an insolvency, it gets cleared up relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's the big advantage of the U.S. We We have a much more dynamic and flexible economy. Look at the way our banks cleaned up all of the failed banks from 2008. Other than mm-hmm. the, the government rescue a city, the industry paid for the entire cleanup, and the FDIC did a brilliant job of selling failed banks on a Friday with no fuss, <laughs> no, no muss for, for consumers. So, you know, you compare that to the gridlock in Europe where they have been totally unable to come together and, and deal with their banks in a in a reasonable fashion. And you see mm-hmm. the same thing in Asia. The Chinese are up to their eyeballs in debt, which they mm-hmm. use to stimulate their economy. Um, so, you know, all countries have an issue with debt. The question is, what other advantages do they have? And that's why the U.S. is still such a, a desirable venue for investors is because we have a lot of other advantages, even though, you know, we have had a problem controlling ourselves when it comes to spending. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, with just a, a couple of minutes left, then what's your uh, what's your appraisal of the U.S. banking situation? I take it you, you're not so worried as you might have been a few years ago, and also you've been a fan of the smaller regional banks in the past. Where do you stand on on both of those issues now, with just a minute and a half left? Well, the small banks, the mid-sized banks, are where all the value creation is in the U.S. Uh, banking system. You know, if you're looking for for a real value story, that's where you should be looking. The larger banks are monopolies. 
they tend to have much lower returns and they take a lot more risk. So, you know, I give you an example. The best of the top five is U.S. Bank Corp. It trades at two times book and it's a very well-run business, no Wall Street exposure. And as a result, it trades at a premium. But I like the smaller group, you know, the regions and the BBTs and the rest of them because they tend to be closer to their customers and they, mm-hmm. as a result, perform better. Um, you're mm-hmm. starting to see an evolution towards non-banks, too, as the big banks get out of a lot of businesses that they had pre- previously you know, bought up and then uh, decimated. So that's uh, interesting, too. There's going to be some, a lot of new green shoots in the world of non-bank finance that I think are important for investors to pay attention to. Very interesting, Christopher. And I guess, uh, do you share some of that information on your blog or some of your ideas on your yes, blog? Yes, I do. Uh, the, yeah. the blog is uh, the Institutional Risk Analyst, and uh-huh. I also publish a uh, financial newsletter, uh, Chris Whalen's Financial Technology Investor, which is published by Agora Financial in Baltimore. And, um, you know, we cover the landscape, the Fed, the mortgage industry, where I spend a lot of time, and, uh, and banks and the rest of it. So uh, we have a lot of fun trying to weave all of this together in a coherent well, narrative. <laughs> we well, think about a mortgage a, company. They've been riding a roller coaster thanks to Donald Trump. And, it, you know, Trump didn't know this. He didn't uh-huh. know that the, the 10-year Treasury would, you know, retreat the way it did. But that's going to cause a 25% drop in mortgage originations this year. Wow. So that's, a, that's a big deal. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, those are some of the ideas that uh, people can pick up from you, Christopher. I want to thank you very much for being with us. And again, folks, the book is Ford Men, From Inspiration to Enterprise. Uh, very interesting read. And I, I take it, Chris, you can buy it at Barnes & Noble or online, whatever, I suppose. Yes, it's, uh, it's up on Amazon. There's a Kindle version and a hardcover, which is, of course, done all in black. Of course. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Christopher. And I hope we can do it again sometime. I really have always been a fan of yours. Enjoy your candid honesty, and uh, it's it's refreshing. We need more of it. So thanks so much for being with us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Well, folks, that is all for this week. Next week, Richard Mayberry, author of the Early Warning Report, will be with us. Richard always has some astute free market observations as well as how foreign policy matters impact the markets. So I hope that you'll join me next week. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. 
Tri-Metals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company exploring and developing its near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. Tri-Metals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a gold resource with a robust preliminary economic assessment. Tri-Metals believes that with further drilling, there is a significant potential to discover 3 to 5 million ounces of gold at Gold Springs. Tri-Metals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively, and its website is trimetalsmining.com.